Danielle, joined by Brenton. Hello all. Thanks for joining us for our honorable mention this month, as we take the opportunity to talk about a great film that just missed out on being on the IMDb's list of the best movies of all time. This month, rated at 8.0 out of 10 on the Internet Movie Database by millions of film lovers from around the world, is The Martian. Released in 2015, starring Matt Damon as the lead, alongside an ensemble cast, The Martian is a science fiction adventure set mostly on the surface of Mars in the year 2035. Based on a 2011 novel by the same name by Andy Weir, The Martian is co-produced and directed by Ridley Scott. Which is pretty cool, considering he's like... The guy, yeah. Yeah. Um. So this is the second time you've seen this, isn't it? Yeah. I remembered a lot. Okay. So I feel like I must have seen it like not long after it came out. I think we watched it about two years ago together. Um, this is actually one of my favorite movies like of all time. I really enjoy it. And it's just like such an enjoyable watch. It's very rewatchable. Yeah. And we were watching the um, the making of the movie kind of special features stuff on the disc that we like to watch for some of these that we do. And it really resonated with me when they said that they were trying to make the movie about the problem solving. You know what I mean? That they made it an enjoyable movie in that it was scientifically, for the most part, accurate, but you had to make it funny if you were going to make it a big, long science movie. And I think it did that really well. Well, that's very much what the book is that it's based on. Um, so I watched this movie about three weeks ago, and then I went and read the novel, and then I watched it again. And in that three weeks, I also listened to interviews with Andy Weir, did some research on what he was doing when writing it. Uh, we even watched Apollo 13, the um, Tom Hanks movie from 95. And all this because, like, you're just interested, not even really yeah. in prep for the podcast. Yeah. Uh, reading the book got me interested and wanted to know more about, like, what's the background of this author? Like, how much research would this guy have to do? Um, and it got me in the mood to to watch Apollo 13, which mm. is pretty much the closest thing to actually happen in human history to, to this story, where people had to, like, survive in these situations that no people have really had to have been in before. That's what I was thinking. Actually, there was a... There was a reference to Apollo 13 movie. What was it? Essentially, like, there's a point in The Martian, like, I'm making some sort of assumption to the audience here that you have a general idea as to what we're talking about when we're talking about The Martian. I'd be surprised if you're listening to this and you don't understand what happens. Um, No, there's a point where the crew sends a message back to NASA and it says, Rich Purnell is a steely-eyed missile man. And in Apollo 13... There's a there's a point where one of the scientists turns to one of the engineers and said, you, sir, are a steely-eyed missile man. Because Rich Purnell uh, was the one who suggested the maneuver where they slingshot around Earth, Earth using the gravity. And that's exactly what they did in the real-life Apollo 13 mission. Um, so it's kind of a reference there, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, if, you, cool. if you pick up on it. Uh, anyway, so I very much know this story from watching it twice in the last three weeks and reading the book. And it's one of the most actually intriguing books that I've read in a long time because it's written in a very different way. It's very much about the problem solving. I would imagine that it's it's written in a very similar tone to Mark Manson's books. He's the one who wrote um, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and See, that doesn't really have a story, though, does it? No, it's like a self-help book, but it's I can imagine... Mark Watney and Mark Manson would be very similar people. Because Mark um, Watney's a bit of a smartass, yeah. Yeah. And they just it just makes it enjoyable to read. Yeah. You know, it's funny, it's fun. Anyone who enjoys the movie and hasn't read the novel, I highly recommend it because, for starters, it's a very respectful adaptation of the novel, so it's very similar. Uh, but it also just goes in depth for the things that they slightly touch on in the movie. And they obviously cut these things out for time issues and, and things, mm. but... Uh, I highly recommend it to anyone because it's very interesting. So Andy Weir published this, self-published it on his own website back in 2011. He did it a chapter at a time and he was doing it just to 
he had a small fan base of people who were interested because Andy Weir, this is his first novel. Yeah. He was a computer programmer for 25 years beforehand. And he was just had an interest in it. He just he was just a guy who was like really interested in the in NASA and the way that the JPL works and did his own research and sort of asked himself the question what would an actual mission to Mars look like or a series of missions? And what if what if this thing went wrong? And what if that thing went wrong? And what if both of them go wrong? Well, and it kind of sounded like he's like, I'm doing the research around this anyway for my own personal interest. Might as well make something useful out of yeah, it. Yeah, so he you just sort of I mean? created a story around all of these things going wrong to a single person. Um, and then it wasn't really published into an actual novel because it was just on his website uh, until 2014 so the movie was already in development it was being filmed he said he got the offer for publishing and the offer from fox like within, within the same four week days of each other yeah. yeah from random That's house crazy. And from fox yeah the thing that i love the most about the martian is that it's real science fiction like i've read this and I've watched it so many times that I'm actually for really forgetting what's real technology and real science and what hasn't been invented yet because it's sci-fi, you know? Because I'm like, oh, yeah, that's absolutely a thing. Yeah, the atmospheric regulator, of course, yeah. Um, because it's written as if this were the way that NASA's actually going to do Mars missions. Like, he's thought about everything that the way that NASA does. And the things that are inaccurate which are few and far between it's fair enough right it's sci-fi it's a novel you had to string these things together uh but it's very true to what could possibly happen in the year 2035 well and even the science the scientific consultants so the physics and nasa consultants they had working on the movie have said the only people who are going to pick up on this little stuff are a very few experts who are just going to go <laughs> yeah right when they're in yeah. the movie theater right like it's it's very and it's for Believable. little things yeah yeah like they were with the movie for sure they had a lot of consultation around um like ship design and technology design for how it was depicted um, for the book, though, like, he did his absolute best to make sure that everything that he included in there actually likely is the direction that NASA's going. Yeah. You know? Actually, it's very interesting that we're recording this today because this little date when we're recording this, but this is, today was the day that they launched, SpaceX launched two astronauts over to the International Space Station. It's the first time that they've launched astronauts from American soil in nine years. So that just proves an, another step. Like, it was a historical launch in the history of NASA and SpaceX. Like, this is a this is a private company who makes their own rockets putting astronauts in space, which hasn't been done before. So it's Pretty the incredible. first... The first launch with the reusable rocket boosters and the first manned launch done by a non-government organization. Yes. Right? It's pretty yeah. incredible. Like, it's just this, both NASA and SpaceX and other space organizations are just putting these stepping stones in place. I think SpaceX, more than anyone, is really uh, advancing the technology in rockets because there's something interesting that um, Andy Weir said mm. after he made the movie is... In making that movie, he got to go to NASA, he got to go to SpaceX, he got to see the differences between the two, and NASA is very much a research station, right? They're all about knowledge, and they've got yeah. all these scientists and lab coats and stuff. SpaceX is a rocket development company. They're engineers, first and foremost, I'd imagine. Yeah, he was saying that, like, they decide how big their rockets are based on how big they can fit them on a truck. Like, they'll make rockets as big as they can. Like, it's a, it's a production line for rockets. It's very different. Well, because their funding source isn't insecure. You know what I mean? You're not having to yeah. work with politics and politicians and governments to secure your funding. It's Elon Musk just saying, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Which must be, honestly, like, for rocket scientists, must be very refreshing. Like, the, the people yeah. who work at SpaceX, it must be very refreshing to say, we, we can do this, and we've got the funding, so actually, we actually can do it. I it's imagine just... you would have a lot of employees at SpaceX who probably 
worked at NASA, right? Oh, yeah. But it's a very different job. It's similar along the same lines, but yeah, it probably is refreshing for them. Um, I just think that it's interesting that these are the developments that are happening. In the last 12 months, there's been quite a few from SpaceX with launching the um, Falcon Heavy and stuff. But back in 2011, there wasn't so much. So... Like, he could project in the future. These are the things that's going to happen. As soon as we get these things cheaper, it's going to be easier and easier. And I think his timeline is actually pretty realistic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's he's, he's the craziest thing. put a lot of thought into this thing, anyway. Is that, like, when this movie came out, we're like, 20 years we'll be on Mars? Mm, I don't know. And now, like, five years later, no, that's that's probably a very realistic projection. Well, they were actually hoping to get astronauts on mars ideally back in the 90s they were planning it uh i don't think they could have done it yeah they they couldn't have um and then they i think they do it aiming for around 2010 again and uh that just keeps getting pushed out for a number of reasons i really kind of think that in our lifetimes we'll definitely see a mars landing like that's definitely a thing uh i would like to for this podcast episode to go through a bit of a breakdown as to what the differences between the book and the movie are um, just because it arises some things that happen throughout the movie, and it's kind of interesting to discuss, even though I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this haven't read the book. But the type of sci-fi that we were talking about, where it's very much sort of based in reality, this is very near future, a lot of it is based on fact, right? That's called hard sci-fi, okay. and something like Star Wars, which is more fantasy than it is science fiction, uh, is soft sci-fi. So you could make up anything you want and say, yeah, that's, that's what exists in this reality. It's the future. They've got everything. Yeah. And I kind of really like that type of sci-fi, the hard sci-fi, as as much like as soft. Soft can be really goofy and fun, but there's something about this hard. And there's a lot of people it's not compelling. really doing it anymore. Yeah, like I think Alien honestly kind of fell into that. Maybe. I was thinking more of like Interstellar. I guess. Oh, uh, yeah. Or Alien. You just said Alien. Or, sorry, not Alien. Um, <sighs> Arrival. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different type of sci-fi, and I, I find it really interesting. I like the distinction. Um, So, since then, Andy Weir has also published his second book called Artemis. And that's basically about a colony being built on the moon. And it's essentially like a tourist destination. I haven't read that book, but I believe it's about lunar tourism. Okay. Uh, And it looks at the economy of putting a city on the moon. Like, what does it look like to have a tourist destination? And what are these commercial trips to and from the moon sort of look like? It's basically asking the question, what if commercial space travel is as efficient as commercial airline travel? around the world, um, which is a very interesting question to ask, and we probably will get there at some point. And the protagonist for that is a Saudi Arabian woman, which is interesting, just because Mark Watney is very much just an American scientist, right? I was going to say he's an average white dude. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. uh, Andy Weir is kind of an average white dude, so I, bl- I believe that that would make it like a refreshing take, you know. Uh, and here it's very good. I hear that um, that's already been set to be made into a movie and uh lord and miller are to be directors on that one uh as of this recording anyway it could change because it's it is projected out the book's already out yeah it's been out for a couple of years okay i think it was 2017 i think it was and they were the directors of like 21 jump street movies interesting pick they were going to do solo but disney didn't like their direction which I think they would have made a really good, like a pretty funny. It would have been good on that project. So uh, we'll see what happens with the Artemis movie, but I'm in- interested in it. Mm. And that's also very much this hard kind of sci-fi. Um, Andy Weir very much has like an optimistic view of humanity, um, and he wants to project that in his science fiction because science fiction often has this dystopic kind of feel to it grungy sort of feel yeah like blade runner Mm. and alien like these other ridley scott science fiction movies and we yeah we even talked about interstellar which is also very dystopic like oh the ends the the world's coming to an end kind of thing and andy weir has this sort of optimistic sort of look to it so that's kind of also refreshing Mm. 
So I think we're going to just do a bit of a run through with a comparison between the book and the movie now. Uh, this is sort of your spoiler warning if you weren't aware before. Uh, we're going to get more into it now. So I think one of the most inaccurate things that is depicted in both the book and the movie uh, is that sandstorm at the beginning. Now, Mars obviously has sandstorms. They have lots of them, but there's no inertia behind it. So it couldn't really blow anything over, like anything, like a piece of paper, let alone the entire MAV, this Mars Ascent vehicle that's meant to be tipping over at the beginning of the film. Essentially, How does that work? It's kind of weird to describe. Like, we were watching behind the scenes and he described it as, like, smoke, where they're very fine particles and, yes, they can get up to, like, 150 miles an hour, but... There's no force behind it. It's very hard to describe. It's because of how thin Mars's atmosphere is. So it... Okay, that's weird because I'm It is really thinking, weird. It it's like... hard for us on Earth, us Earthlings to understand. Because I'm thinking, like, would it be like 150 mile an hour winds? But no, it wouldn't. It's a type of wind. And Andy Weir knew that when he was writing it, but he needed something to happen that was going to put the entire mission in jeopardy, that was going to be able to take the other crew members away but leave Mark Watney there, and that was kind of the best solution he came up with. So he's like, eh, whatever, uh, well, that's essentially. one thing that, like you say, your general audience will buy notice. into it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he has since come out and said, like, he didn't realize that Mars has lightning storms because of all mm-hmm. the static electricity, because of all these dust particles. Um, which is actually depicted in the movie. You do see some lightning mm-hmm. storms. So if he were to rewrite it again, he, that's probably one of the only things he would change is he would make the Mav like in jeopardy because of lightning struck it or something like that. Uh, it would just make it more scientific. And accurate. Yeah. So if that's the biggest thing, I think it's a pretty damn good like science fiction story set in reality. And if that's the easily forgivable kind of yeah. thing. Which everyone has said, like, ah, fair enough. (laughs) It's just a movie. A lot of the times books describe things that you just can't show in movies. So books are almost always better than the movies. But Mm. this particular movie does a few things better than the book. Like, the book tells you things that are shown in a funny way in the movie. Like, it shows Watney's thought processes to figure it out, while the book sort of just has to tell you. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, yes, it's better in a lot of ways, but the movie does some other things. Probably to explain to the audience, but even though it's like the same information, it comes across better visually. I was going to say, it's visual storytelling. You have the opportunity for visual storytelling. Yeah. We've taken a big move away and it's kind of taboo or, you know, not best practice to do like voiceover narration. Now it's seen as yeah. kind of tacky. So... Definitely, of course, a a movie and doing things visually is going to come across and be more, you know, appropriate than having to list it out in writing. Well, even the, um, well, the both storylines have a very clever way to make it first person, but also in third person. Um, The diary logs that Mark Watney keeps is an interesting way for him to essentially talk to the audience because he's talking to himself. Right? Like, this is a diary that he keeps, and he's telling all his thoughts, he's telling all his thought processes to sort of keep himself sane and to keep it as a log for NASA to look at whenever they can. Uh, So, I think that's a really interesting, like, a story device, just to be able to tell the story without narration. Like, it's it's a clever Mm. way for Mark Watney to talk to the audience without having over-narration. And is that, like, was that in the book? Yeah, he's mostly talking... In logs. Okay. Like, a lot of the book is told from him making these journal entries. Okay. Uh, so, an example of something that actually comes across better visually in the movie is, in the book, he says, I foraged around in the medical supplies and found some Vicodin. Should be kicking in soon. But that becomes a really funny quip with him running out of ketchup with Matt Damon. And he's like, it's yeah. been seven days since I ran out of ketchup. I'm going to dip this potato in some crushed Vicodin and no one can stop me. Uh, so it's yeah. really funny, like, this thing that he adds and makes of it. It's a really clever script written by Drew Goddard. There's also the scene where he finally makes contact using the Pathfinder. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, JPL points the camera to the yes, you are, I am receiving you. And Matt Damon just goes, yes. And he puts his hands up and he sort of faces the nothingness of Mars. That's a really funny visual where you don't get that in the book, right? Like they added mm-hmm. that in there. And I just think that comes across uh, really funny. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of funny things that they added. Just on that JPL, do you really need the no sign? Because if they weren't receiving, they're not going to point to no. Are you receiving? Just put a yes I sign. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. And there's also the Rich Purnell demonstration where Donald Glover comes in and he, he uses the pen and the stapler to go around Teddy. In that, it's pretty much uh, Vincent Kapoor's character comes in and just has a meeting with Teddy and says, this is the Rich Purnell maneuver. Um, and that's just really funny. And that's kind of essential because it's for the audience to understand what's actually happening with the ship and the probe. Um, mm. So I'm kind of glad that they, had that they added that into the movie. And it's, again, it's just a, a funny thing. Like he's like, I'm sorry, well, what was your name again? I'm Teddy, <laughs> the director of director NASA. Director of NASA. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so that's not in there, but um, it's very similar. You just get you get the opportunity to get this wonderful actor who is Donald Glover to do his thing, which just adds to it. It's like he's not essential. Well, but yeah, he's good even, at what he does. Even um, she would tell Effigio, uh, Vincent Kapoor, he clicks the pen on Kristen Wiig's forehead and gives it back to him. Like, yeah. it's, it's just a really funny interaction just to tell you the science. And then after that, Teddy's like, Rich, get out. <laughs> yeah. Um, funny. So there are a few things that are better in the book, but there's actually quite a few things that are better in the movie. Yeah. And that's just by virtue of them being different modes of doing the same thing. Yeah. Different mediums, yeah, I've done the same thing. It's yep. a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, pretty much, like, the reason why he wrote the book, as we said before, it's just, like, all these problems, what if this goes wrong, what if that goes wrong? And it's just, that's what why it's an intriguing read, because I haven't read something like that before. He doesn't just go into depth of describing what Mark Watney looks like, you know? It never even mentions his eye color or his hair color or anything like that. It just, the only description I think is Johansson. They said that she was a good looking woman uh, who's played by Kate Mara. But apart from that, it's it's all about the science. It's about the problems. It's about the situation they're in, not the characters themselves. And I think that's mm. why it's an interesting thing. So like in the, in, in the book, this is what happens, right? So when he's trying to make water, he's got hydrazine, which is the, the fuel that the Mav uses. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to separate it to get hydrogen and oxygen to kind of separate. And I think there's nitrogen in there as well. But what he accidentally does is he fills the hab up with 64% hydrogen, basically making it a time bomb. Like he, he compares it to the Hindenburg. <laughs> um, so he has to sleep in the rover for a couple of days. And what he does to try and solve that problem is he takes all of the oxygen out of the hab so it doesn't blow up because you need oxygen to burn. For combustion, yeah. Yeah. He then releases just enough oxygen. He puts on his, his space suit. He goes back in. He releases just enough oxygen to very slowly burn off hydrogen, like just a slight leak. And he burns and burns and burns for hours just to try and get rid of all the hydrogen. He doesn't have, he doesn't have any other way to get rid of the hydrogen in the hab. And that's to make his water. Yeah, this, is, this was all to make his water, but he kind of... Stuffed he, up. He fucked up by making it too yeah. much hydrogen. But if he takes all the oxygen out of the hab... The bacteria in his potatoes need oxygen. So he has to lower the temperature so that the bacteria doesn't need as much oxygen. So he lowers the temperature down to one degree Celsius to make them hibernate. But if he does that, it'll kill his potatoes. So he moves all of his potatoes to live in bags inside the rover. Um, So he's got like these potatoes in soil, sample bags, all in his rover. It's like a whole task. So while he's burning off the hydrogen, he has to wear an oxygen mask, which has a slight leak with his outbreath. Whenever he breathes out, there's a, there's a slight breach in the seal, which is enough oxygen to eventually blow him up, as seen in the movie. But it doesn't destroy hmm. the hab because he, at that point he had burnt off most of the hydrogen. And if he hadn't, yes, he would have created his own little bomb. Um, it's just interesting that it's one problem after another and you don't even like... You're like, oh, yeah, that would kill the bacteria. Oh, yeah, that would kill the potatoes. The entire story is in, like, this order. 
And mm. there's this one problem and you got to fix it. And then to fix it, you got to come up with two more problems. And that's why it's fascinating. And then what they did with that scene in the movie is they just show Mark sort of blowing himself up. And he says that I didn't equate for my outbreath in my calculations. Mm. And knowing that this is slightly different in the book, I don't think that actually makes any sense the way they're depicted in the movie. No, because I thought about it. I'm like, that means he can never go back in there. That means he can never go back into his little egg zone because every time he breathes, he'll be messing up the balance of chemicals in the air. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, he'd have to have a hazmat suit every time he goes in there. And he doesn't. He goes in, not naked, but, you know, like, not protected. Yeah. Lots. So, I could be wrong, but the way it's shown in the movie doesn't really make any sense. Because he needs to be in his spacesuit, burning off the hydrogen very slowly with oxygen in the process described in the book to make that explosion make sense. And I don't think it does. So, it's, it's almost like they've given you the cliff notes... In the movie, Version, and you just sort of, yeah. and you just sort of trust that, yeah, okay, he's out of breath. He didn't calculate it. Explosion, whatever. Um, I think they're relying a little bit on average Joe doesn't know science, which is fair enough. I mean, it's just yeah. a movie, but I was just watching that after reading the book doesn't make sense to me. The science mm-hmm. doesn't make sense, and it's written in such a way that every step that he takes, even if you don't know complex science it makes sense Mm. like the fact that you can make water with this hydrazine by burning the hydrogen and the oxygen like that makes sense i'm not a scientist but that's how you make water you know Mm -hmm. uh which is actually interesting uh sorry for me rambling on about this but uh (laughs) the way the mav works so he even says in the movie this is a mars ascent vehicle they take it to Mars years in advance. Like they said, the Ares 4 MAV is already there, even though Mm -hmm. the the astronauts won't get there for another four years. Now, they do that because they make rocket fuel with Mars's atmosphere. Rather than taking their own hydrogen and oxygen and stuff and putting it in tanks, because weight is everything with space missions, they Mm -hmm. put this empty MAV... And essentially, it pulls all of the atoms out of the air. Now, Mars's atmosphere is so thin that it takes four years to fill a tank with rocket fuel. And in order to power that pump is where the RTG comes in. The plutonium heat reactor, basically, that they said that they buried when they first got there. It's because they don't want that thing around astronauts. So they put the MAV on Mars years in advance with this... RTG powering the pump, it sucks in all of the uh, atmosphere around it to create this hydrazine fuel, and it just takes forever. Um, And then when the astronauts do arrive, go bury the plutonium four kilometers away. So that's essentially how that works. And they did use this technology, I believe, in the 90s. Maybe it was even with Pathfinder, but I believe that that NASA has used this, this heat transferring RTG because it's a free source of power, essentially. It's just Mm. not entirely safe around people. So they do it on unmanned missions, and I believe that's real science. But I just think that's really clever because, again, this hasn't actually been done in reality to have a MAV work that way. But it's so believable. It's it's very much blurring the lines of like, oh, yeah, I I have to remember that that's actually science fiction. That's not real. Uh, Just because it makes a lot of sense. Mm Mm-hmm. And I do love how he takes real-life things like Pathfinder that we can research ourselves. This is a thing that happened in our lifetimes. And he adds it into this book about this, this science fiction yeah. story about this guy living on Mars. Like, I it's really so liked really that. well done. Well, and it created like a story arc, too, because they're like, where is he going? So they go to the cafeteria and they find the map and they show you the actual... Like, location of where Pathfinder is located on Mars, on this map. Yeah. And, you know, and they say, oh, I know where he's going. I know yeah. exactly what he's doing. That's really interesting to read in the book. Even though it's it's pretty much exactly the same that it's in the movie, and I know what's going to happen. It's just like, oh, yes. Like, it's it's so, like, exhilarating to try and, like, read them figuring out what Mark Watney's doing, because this is before they have communication with him. Mm. Um. I just get giddy about this story. I just I think it's interesting. 
I like, too, how later on he has the little rover, like the little yeah <laughs> running around in the hab it's it looks like it reminds me of like the jetsons and their robot dog they've actually got you know? those in star wars like in i think it's inside the the death star they've got these little droids just sort of like driving around on your ankle sort of thing that's kind of what yeah. it's like love it <laughs> yeah and that like honestly that's probably the only reason why he brought it in there it's probably it's like, like just the companion that i have in there yeah it's like his version of r2 or his version of Wilson from Castaway, where he's got someone yeah. to talk to. Yeah. Because, um, actually, this is very much kind of like a Castaway situation. It's oh, a guy stranded much. on a deserted planet instead of an island. Yeah. Um, actually, in that, I was going to ask, in reality, does NASA use the Imperial system because they're an American company, or do they use... The metric system, because they can talk better with international space agencies. I think they use both, and that's why you had the whole Hubble debacle. Right. But I feel like they've learned since then. Like, they've had a lot of problems with the conversions. Um, Yeah, so you'd think, just go with metric. They had a satellite that crashed on Mars because of the... They didn't calculate it properly because of the conversion. So I believe that... I would like to believe that NASA has at least picked one. Yeah. Um, I just say that because both the book and movie, everything is in metric. Everything. He's talking about kilometers. He's talking about degrees Celsius. And I just wonder how well that translates to a North American audience. In Canada, it would. I think in every other country except the US, it would. But this is an American movie based about Americans uh, and American space agency. So I was just wondering how the metric system works with those guys. Not sure. They've had their they've had their issues with it in the past. Yeah. I was just thinking about at the very beginning when he's having to, you know, kind of patch himself up after he gets back to the hab. It made me wonder how much like and what kind of training they have to do as astronaut training cuz obviously you have to do like zero gravity training and mechanics and stuff like the kind of things you're gonna have to do living there but it also made me wonder like do you have to do a certain amount of like medical met yeah medical training like beyond first aid you know what i mean like he knew exactly which clamps to grab and which instruments and how to do it and how to i don't know because he might just know those things because he's a scientist and he's smart but mm. they had a medical doctor on the ship, on the crew, in order for him to be the main medical expertise there. So that was Beck, mm. um, played by Sebastian Stan. So maybe they don't do specific medical training, but he just he just knows things because he's really just well trained and smart. And they've they had to work together for like two years before that. Like the whole crew has been working together yeah. in training and the mission to Mars. Um, I just think it would be clever to know, like, in the same way that um, probably um, military have to do a certain amount of higher level medical training Maybe, just probably. for survivalist stuff. Like, I would I would be really surprised if they sent them in with nothing, yeah. you know? No, I imagine you'd kind of need to be a jack of all trades. Well, because just like, what if your medical officer dies? Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. What I thought was really interesting about this mission that's described is every one of the crew has two expertise. So they're, you, you sort of get it like a, a crew of 12 people in six people. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Mark Watney was a botanist, obviously, but he's also a mechanical engineer, which I don't think they ever mentioned in the movie. And that's how he's able to rig a lot of these things up because he's an expert in two different fields. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I'm trying to think what the other crew members were. Like, one of them was, like, a chemist and a nuclear technician or something like that. Like, the, everyone has two specialties. Um, I think well, it instead sounded of- like Johansson was their computer coder, um, like, their their computer IT expert and a chemist, based, like, in the movie. I don't know if Johansson was the chemist. Vogel was the chemist. Okay. Um, like, Commander Lewis is a geologist- but she's also a Navy commander. Military. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, which is really clever. And I think that if they ever were to do a mission like this, you'd have to recruit people like it that. would be pretty similar to, to that. Like these people, man, they must have just been studying for like fucking 15 years. Um, that's another thing that I really admired about the writing is the naming conventions. Like these are the Ares missions mm-hmm. and NASA often names these things after Greek and Roman gods. And Ares is essentially Mars, right? That means Mars. You studied mythology more than me. Oh. Because Mars is Roman and Ares is Greek. It might have been. I just really respect that. Like, that's clever. Like, Mm. again, if they were to do this, they should call it the Ares missions, you know? Yeah, like, we both are like, why did they call the moon missions the Apollo missions? Yeah, because Apollo means sun, right? Yeah, well, it doesn't mean sun. Apollo was the sun god who drove the sun chariot across the sky every day, and his sister Artemis was the moon goddess who drove the moon across the sky every day. That's what I thought. Ares is the ram symbol in the zodiac, but its ruling planet is Mars. Okay. Yeah. And its element is fire. We could get we could get into a whole bunch of shit about astrology right now, but we don't have time for that. It makes You really sense. liked your mythology class, yeah. didn't you? Oh, uh, I loved it. It was great. Which again is why I think it's very clever to name his next book Artemis, cuz like you said, that's the moon god. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh and even the ship that they use in the story is the Hermes. And he's the messenger, messenger isn't he? god. Yeah, yeah, I just think that's that's ah, I love it. <laughs> like this mm-hmm. is just a little thing like you didn't have to call it something dumb like curiosity and opportunity or whatever. Um Yeah. And there's actually a funny quip in the book where he says when he's he's testing the rover to do these longer and longer trips to go out to Ares 4, he calls them the serious missions. As yeah. in the dog star, and he's like, "Do you yeah. get it?" And I'm like, "I don't, I don't get it, dog. What?" And I'm like, it took me ages to realize rover. He's doing these yeah. rover missions, and I'm like, "Oh, I get it now." But yeah, he's just adding these things in there that's like, I don't know. I just thought Funny. it was really clever. Yeah, there's a few things that Mark Watney names after himself um, when he's driving to Ares Four. He, he there's these three big craters, and he calls them the Watney Triangle. And he's also in his calculations. Um, he's what was it it's like he came up with his own new um unit system i'm trying to remember what it was it was like uh kilowatts per soul kilowatt hours per soul i think it was and he's Mm -hmm. like that's way too long to say i'm just gonna make my own unit of measurement right here and he's like i could name it anything i want so i'm gonna call them a pirate ninja and i just think that's just like so he's like okay so we got 21 pirate ninjas And that's just very much his type of humor. And it makes yeah. the reader just like, I don't know, it, it it kind of humanizes the character better. So it's not just like this nerdy scientist without a, with this like the depressing sort of story that he's going through. He's keeping his own spirits up. Here's the thing too, because I mean, people who probably read this book probably do know people like that. But for the average person, like how many people know physicists? How many people know a lot of PhDs. You know what I mean? Many don't. I have been lucky in the opportunity to have been, you know, gone to a school where I was taught by a lot of people who were very highly educated. And I can tell you, like, a lot of them are just very much like that. They're just funny people. Like, you've kind of got, in the PhD community, and you can probably relate to this too from your university experiences, you've kind of got two types of people. You've got... The ones who are pretty arrogant and really, like, socially awkward. Or the ones who are just like, don't call me doctor. I don't like that. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's too formal, you know? <laughs> yeah. And those are the kind of people that's kind of like, you look at them and you're like, how do you have a PhD? Not because you're not smart, but because, like, you're too cool for this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So something that the movie doesn't really tell you is why the hab actually exploded. There's the scene where yeah, Watney is in the airlock. And then I'm just like, what the fuck happened? He pressed the button and it just like ripped and went yeah. flying. Essentially, that's down to overuse. This thing was designed for 31 souls and it was 
I'm trying to think what soul it was was when it exploded. I think it was close to 100. Mm-hmm. So it was just wear and tear. That's literally all it okay. was. These things weren't designed for that long, and he's using this one airlock over and over again. Um, and from that point forward, he has three airlocks, right? Mm-hmm. But because airlock one was closest to the rover, he was only using one of them. So it went to overuse and it exploded. Uh, so he had to vary which airlocks he was using from that point forward to try to avoid that from happening again. Um, yeah, because that very nearly fucked him. Oh, yeah. And that's an interesting scene in the book because it takes him 24 hours to, like, his EVA suit was so fucked he couldn't get outside the airlock. He had to, like, shuffle this whole airlock and roll it back over to the hab or he could seal himself up again. It it fucked him a lot more in the book than it did in the in the movie. I think just, like, one line of dialogue would have said, oh, it exploded because of overuse. It wasn't designed for it. Uh, it would have helped. Uh, and they yeah, didn't they, didn't, in there. they didn't put it in the movie, and it was just like, why did that happen? Because you're starting to get to the point where it's like Murphy's Law. Yeah. Like anything that can happen will happen. Um, yeah. Which is like... It's unplanned space travel. They weren't supposed to be there. Yeah, but it's like, like with that, it's like if you give an explanation, it's a little bit more believable. As yeah. opposed to, oh, he's just got bad luck because that's his thing. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And same with the probe exploding. They did add a, a quick sentence in there where Vincent's talking to the press about what actually happened. Um, yeah. But essentially what happened, I want to describe it more because I, it lost me the several few times that I watched it before. What they were sending to Mark in the supplies was essentially protein bars. Because they mm-hmm. needed a lot of nutrients in, a, in condensed form. And the best thing I could come up with was these protein bars. Uh, and at those Gs that it was tested to, these things essentially liquefied under the rattling and the forces put on it. And it shifted the weight, basically. So much so that it, it ruptured Unbalanced and exploded. The rocket, yeah. yeah. Uh, and this is something that would have been addressed during the testing phases. But Teddy obviously says, skip the testing phases. And I just think that's interesting. The descriptions of these protein bars turning to liquid. He describes it kind of like it can happen during earthquakes where when the frequency is right in the right location, the ground can just liquefy because the water rises up through the through the dirt particles. It's like a liquefaction kind of thing. Mm. Uh, but both of those explosions didn't really go into depth in the movie as to why they actually happened, so I just wanted to clarify. Yeah. I was just going to ask, when the hab did explode and everything... He lost all his air and the pressure inside the hab. How did that not destroy a lot of his instruments? Because things like a laptop, there's a scene where he brings a laptop outside and it instantly doesn't work. Um, And he forgets. He's like, well, yeah, of course it didn't work. I'm an idiot. Because there's liquid inside the screen, LCD, and it instantly freezes. But is Mars, like... So the issue with that is the temperature... At night, obviously, it gets fucking cold. But what about during the day? During the day, it might be okay. Now, in the movie, it's shown to blow up at At night. night. And he goes back in to his potatoes and there's, like, snow everywhere. Yeah, so, like, that's what I was going to say is, like, my question is essentially rendered moot by the way it's portrayed in the movie, right? Because in that, it's not like you have... A vacuum or anything like you still have a thin atmosphere but it's just you're exposing things that aren't meant to be it's a near to vacuum atmosphere okay so might be okay during the day well i, th- I think it's still really cold during the day because okay. you even see mark like freezing his ass off with it with the heater off uh oh, and yeah. it, i think it ranges from like negative 15 degrees celsius to negative 65 depending on okay uh the time of the day so it's still really cold I've got all my gears and my brain spinning, and I'm like, and that's because it's not got the same kind of atmosphere that Earth does, so it can't. There's no trap ozone. The yes. same, and yeah, it's also it further away yeah. from the sun. Yeah. Okay. So there's that, a number of factors. There's a there's a few different reasons why it's cold. Okay. So yeah, that probably they just glossed over because people are like, oh, computers, computers are okay. Yeah, you wouldn't think that. Like even Mark in the book is like, I I just thought it's an electronic. But, of course, it didn't work, you know? I would imagine that they would have... Um, like, intrinsically safe kind of different technology. Yeah, not just for space, but for, like, research in Antarctica. 
I don't know. I have no idea. It's a good point, actually. Because, Surely they like, have something. You've, you've got to have things that you need to transport them somehow. They need to be sturdy and torquey. Maybe the instruments that NASA actually has in the rover and the computer that's on the HAB, maybe they're all set like that, designed for those negative, those near vacuum, those negative temperatures. But maybe those other ones that are never meant to go outside, why would you put the time that's and exactly money into right. making them? Yeah, because so the laptop that he had was from their personal belongings, and they were just meant to be whatever you bring your laptop, put whatever you want on it. It's just a a normal laptop. Yeah, yeah, it's not meant to be uh, outside. It was never meant to be, which raises the question: If this mission takes like eleven months to go from Mars to Earth, and everyone left in a hurry, and they left all their personal belongings behind, they have to go back home for eleven months without personal belongings. Nothing. No laptops, no music. They had TV series on there. He had his own writing materials. Um, He said one of them left their e-reader behind and he was reading all these Agatha Christie novels. Um, That must really suck. Like, with the whole COVID-19 isolation, people were pulling their hair out after like a week. Can you imagine that? You know, like both Mark Watney and the crew of the Hermes has to be in isolation, basically. For years. Maybe you could request NASA to please, please upload all the seasons of Seinfeld onto the space. Or something like that. The space computer. See, I don't think that they could do that unless they were close to Earth, which is when they were getting those live transmissions with their friends and families, when they were they got, docking the Tian Shen. They got things that weren't live transmissions, though, like the yeah, Rich Purnell maneuver and the... Oh, there was a video oh, from Oh, the Mitch. transmission from... Yeah. Yeah. I guess. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I just thought, like, man, that must suck, just, like, not having any of your personal belongings. It really would. On that note, a huge theme through the whole movie is uh, Commander Lewis's taste in disco music. Yeah. Um, I like how they incorporated that into the soundtrack, and it actually kind of worked. Yeah, yeah. Which, was, it just made it kind of fun, you know, and different. It was kind of almost Guardians-esque, you know? A little bit, because there's, like, nothing in the soundtrack that's after 1980, you know? And that's very much in the book. Like, there's a lot of pop culture references in the book, Mm -hmm. which come across in the movie. Like, he does actually pose as the Fonz. He is watching a lot of uh, 70s sitcoms and listening to the 70s disco. And he's even, like, trying to figure out what, like, his theme song is going to be. And he's like, it could be Spaceman by david bowie or it could be like a number of things and i think he ends up going with um staying alive by the Bee Gees, hmm. uh is sort of his theme song which is really funny like you said it just it it was really clever writing on andy weir's part because he didn't want to make this like a character story but you yeah. can't like it would be boring if you didn't humanize it yeah so he he just did it in a really clever way there was a couple other things that I wanted to describe real quick from the book. Um, one of them is when he's drilling the holes in the top of the rover to try and add... Basically, he has to put like the atmospheric regulator up there and the oxygenator because those things won't actually fit in there. Uh, so he can put them up on the roof, but he needs to knock a big hole in the roof. Um, and the way it's described in the book is he has to drill these one centimeter holes, half a centimeter apart, and then chisel the distance between them. But there's the hole, the perimeter of it is 11.4 meters, meaning that there's 760 holes. So each drill takes 160 seconds each, uh, but you can only drill three holes before having to recharge the battery because it wasn't designed for that. And the recharging takes 41 minutes. So it's a combined total of 173 hours of drilling or 21 straight days of drilling. And this is just like, passed over in the book and in the movie and during the drilling he accidentally fries the electronics on the pathfinder so he has no communication for nasa for the rest of the story until he goes back to the the mav at Ares 4 which is not shown in the movie but there's a reason for it like it's forgivable um Mm. he essentially gives them status updates by spelling out morse code in rocks Mm. but i just remember reading that part about him drilling for three weeks straight of just sitting there drilling. Um, it just sounds brutal. 
Uh, and the biggest thing that I think they kept out of the movie, particularly due to time restraints, um, is there's a massive sandstorm that he encounters driving from Ares 3 to Ares 4. Now, they obviously kept this out for time restraints, and they already had their sandstorm issue at the beginning of the movie, so they kind of just would be rehashing the same thing. Mm-hmm. But it's really interesting and different because he doesn't have communication to NASA anymore, but NASA can still see him with satellites. They can see that he's driving straight into the sandstorm, and but they can't, they can't tell him about him. it. Yeah. And it's so thin, quote unquote, that Mark actually drives for several days into this storm before he realizes he's in the storm. Hmm. And it's just written so well, like not only him discovering that he's actually in a storm, because he's standing on this ridge and he's looking in the horizon and he's like, it looks more misty over there than where I came from. What is happening? Um, He's realizing that he's losing efficiency on his solar panels. So he just thinks that that's just wear and tear. And then he realizes he's in a storm. He has to figure out what the size of it is, the shape of it is, how fast it's going, which direction it's going, just to try and get around it in the right amount of time to get to the Ares 4. And what he does is he sets up this experiment by leaving these solar panels with a camera so he can he can read how much the efficiency is on these solar panels, and he spreads them out over this 40-kilometer sort of stretch. So he has three of them over an 80-kilometer stretch. And then the next day, he goes back and picks them all up and reads the efficiency. And he's like, okay, so this one was at 17% efficiency and this one was at 19. So therefore, the storm is going this way. I'm going to assume that it's pretty circular. So therefore, I have to go this direction. Like, it's just so clever to even just come up with that. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they didn't put it in the movie for very reasonable reasons. Um, But that's probably the biggest thing that they kept out. And it's just so compelling. It's just so smart, the way that it's it's described. Um, and that's why it's, it's so intriguing. There was one thing I wanted to touch on in the beginning, but I didn't want to do it for fear of spoiling things. Um, spoiler, he gets back to Earth. Okay, now that I've said that. Um, <laughs> so he ends up teaching a class, right, that's basically like, Survival 101 for astronauts, for yes. new recruits to the astronaut That doesn't program. happen in the book. And I was just thinking to myself, would that have existed before him? And if so, who would have taught it? Probably the Apollo 13 astronauts. Yeah. What's his name? Lovell? Jim Lovell? Yeah. Probably Jim Lovell. But I'm just thinking, um, was there any other mission that really had a lot of like, oh shit, kind of like that? Well, I think it's really interesting in reality that... No humans have ever died in space or in orbit, which is kind of amazing considering what we've actually done in space. Yeah. I'm trying to think when astronauts actually have died. There was the Apollo 1 missions where they died in a fire on the launch pad. There's obviously Challenger. I think there was Discovery. But considering how many hundreds of missions, the rockets that we've launched with humans in it, uh, there actually hasn't been a lot. Of what was your question exactly? Fatalities. Who would, if there was a sur- space survival 101 course for new astronaut recruits, who would teach it? I don't know. Probably Real- experts. realistically, experts in each individual field to try to make a single person in experts in every field. If that makes yeah. any sense. I'm just thinking, like honestly, real life equivalent to Mark Watney is probably Jim Lovell. Probably, probably. Yeah. That being said, like, I was going to ask you, this guy's life probably cost Earth, like, close to a trillion dollars. Yeah. And years of research. And there's a little part of me, like, towards the end of this movie, I always just, I wish this story were true, because it would be the single greatest accomplishment of the human race. Mm. Like, for everyone is sort of working together. It's not about the money anymore. It's about, the like, it's bigger than everyone including Watney. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, like I was thinking to myself, would the Chinese space agency actually, like, would the director actually say this isn't about politics, this is about science? I don't know about that, you know? The way that it's worded is NASA owns Hermes. Mm -hmm. They're the ones controlling these Ares missions. Mm -hmm. China wants to get an astronaut in Ares 5 or 6, I think it is. I think it's 5. Ares 5. Mm-hmm. And the way that they can do that is by helping them out. 
So it is sort of a political trade-off, which is probably one of the more like realistic motivations as to why they would actually do it. So they were getting Absolutely. something for it. But there's a very interesting line when Vincent's talking to one of the scientists in China when they were when they were launching the Tian Shen probe, mm-hmm. where he's basically saying that like we gave up so much and sacrificed so much for years, years of overtime and pressing congressmen to try and get like their equivalent of congressmen basically to try and get mm-hmm. funding, and they'll never give it to us again. So I hope you like really appreciate what we're actually giving you with this Tian Shen probe. Um, and it was really kind of impactful. Like it was like one paragraph that I'm like, oh man, like that that has got a lot of weight behind that. This these yeah. guys having to also give up their probe, and I believe they had to scrap the Ares four missions in total. They just skipped straight to Ares five. Like they they gave up so much for this. That's why I said it's probably costs close to a trillion dollars, honestly. But it became bigger than any of them, including mm-hmm. Whitney. So I was going to ask you, what do you think is the single greatest achievement in human history? I would say the moon landing, but after watching Apollo 13, Apollo 13 is kind of like the moon landing science and accomplishment, but to an extra degree of survival. So I'm actually thinking more towards the Apollo 13 survival mission as one of the greatest things. It's kind of a hard question. Yeah. Greatest accomplishments in human history. Well, the Falcon Heavy tests have changed the science of space travel. Like, Elon Musk is going to go down with Sir Isaac Newton. He probably you know will. I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, he wasn't the one who developed it, but um, his Yeah, company, I don't know about name. Newton, but he'll definitely be talked about long after he's dead, which is... Yeah. A nice legacy to have. Well, and for some reason, I'm thinking to myself, you know, like, oh, it's got to be something we've done lately because everything is progressive, but I don't think that's necessarily true. Mm. Don't know. It's a hard question. Like, if you're looking at some of the most impactful things, you could look at Britain's colonization of the world, you know, mm. that changed the world. If it had yeah. been France, we'd live yeah. in a very different world, you know? If it hadn't happened, we'd live in a very very different world. Um, it always interests me looking at things that way because I was like, I remember, um, I think it was Time Magazine that did uh, the greatest invention of the twentieth century, and that's kind of just an interesting question to ask yourself, like what what could be eligible? And I believe it was the contraceptive pill. Yeah. And the second invention was the brazier, which are pretty revolutionary sort of things. Especially for women, obviously. Um, but I just like those sort of questions that sort of make you think, ah, you know, what, what could be up there? Anyway, back to the movie. The movie does kind of have a very clever way of not saying the word fuck in order to reach the PG rating. Because you think about it and you're like, oh, yeah, you're right. They never actually say it. But, like, I love the scene because I swore to God that he actually did say it. But what it was is that the camera was outside the rover, so yeah. it couldn't hear him. So you could yeah. see him mouthing it. So clever. And then in NASA communications, I don't know if the computer would just be trained to, like, recognize him and, and take it out, but it was, like, F star, star, star. Yeah. You know? Um, uh, and at JPL, he's like, F word, uh, F word again, um, you know? Uh, yeah. And, yeah, so... I think that's, it's just really clever, and there's there's a lot of instances of movies to try and meet that PG rating. I believe that's the classification in America where you're you're probably allowed. I think I believe you're allowed to have one use of the word fuck, and there's some really clever uses of the word fuck throughout films, movies, yeah, because that's what they're allowed to get away with, and there's no others in that movie. Um, I don't think they actually used that one privilege in this movie. I think it was all sort of censored out. But I just always, I always like seeing examples of that. Well, I kind of like it because I think it. there are some people who just don't like to swear. Or they're in situations where they have to convey that there was a swear word, but that but you can't use it because it's not professional. And I think just the way they showed people reacting to his language, it was just very... Again, it was very human, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I liked it. I like this movie. It's funny. 
I guess I'm just surprised that Andy Weir hadn't written anything before and that he was, like, such a clever, witty writer. Yeah. You know? And he's he obviously quit his day job, and uh, now he's a full time writer. I don't know what he's working on next, but um, do you know yeah, what he like, used good to for do? him, <laughs> huh? Do you know what he used to do? I said he was a computer programmer, so I believe he's an engineer. I believe he's a software engineer. Right. But um, yeah, he he was he's he called himself just a cubicle dweller, and he enjoyed it, just working on these computers for years. He was just an enthusiast That's of uh, space missions. Yeah. I did just want to say before we wrap up that this is such an interesting, compelling science fiction story directed by ridley scott about this guy trying to survive like it's all about it's about all of the astronauts trying to survive and nobody dies in this whole movie and if you think about it that's very rare very rare for a science fiction movie to not show have anyone die anyone die when you know what i think it is that excuses that for lack of a better word, is that they come very close many, many, many times. Yeah. A few different people. <laughs> you kind of get the thrill of... Because that's essentially what death usually brings. It's like, oh, there are real stakes involved here, you know, because someone died. But you get that. You get that, absolutely. And uh, they have to use science to get away from death, you know? And that's yep. that's why the movie holds up. It wouldn't be the same if, if the science didn't work and someone accidentally died. Um, there's all these provisions in place. So. Well, and I really like... Like you said, it's not luck. It's not brawn. It's pure brains. Yeah. It is pure brains getting them out of this jam. You know. I would highly recommend the book to anyone who loves the movie. And I would highly recommend the movie to anybody who loves hard sci-fi. We have been Danielle and Brenton this week. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on all the socials. We're most active on Instagram. You can also follow us on Facebook, comment on SoundCloud or YouTube, or support us on Patreon. And until next time, thanks for listening. I love, I love our music i think it suits us i think you found good picks cool all right